Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. A Fine Time for Healing is a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy the show. Today's special guest, TJ Woodward, is a revolutionary recovery expert, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, educator, and addiction treatment specialist who has helped countless people through his simple yet powerful teachings. TJ enlightens and entertains audiences around the world using his captivating and authentic style. He assists people in literally changing the way they exist through his informative and dynamic talks and trainings. He is also the creator of the Conscious Recovery Method. Um, TJ is the author of the best-selling books, Conscious Recovery, A Fresh Perspective on Addiction, Conscious Being, Awakening to Your True Nature, and Conscious Creation, Five Steps to Embracing the Life of Your Dreams, as well as the co-author author of workbooks that are, that are accompanying it. Welcome, TJ. Thank you so much, Randy. I'm delighted to be here with you. I'm delighted to have you. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, we're going to talk today about toxic relationships. So I think the most important place to start is, what is a toxic relationship? And how do you define that? Well, I think for me, a toxic relationship is anything that is toxic to my soul or my spirit. And I know we're going to talk at in depth about what that actually means. I think a lot of times when we hear people talking about toxic relationships, they tend to talk about the other person or the situation. And so I have kind of a deeper approach about how we heal from the inside out and then watch those relationships shift before our eyes. But the short version, if you think about a toxic waste dump, you know, in the physical world, it's poison, right? And so if we're in any kind of relationships that feel poisonous to our soul, that would be considered a toxic relationship to me. Poisonous to our soul. Okay, got it. Um, so if we're in a toxic relationship, it doesn't always mean that the other person is toxic or does it always mean that the other person is toxic? Well, I, I think we could say yes and no, right? Okay. Because again, the tendency to look at the other person and it's super popular now in our culture to label people as toxic, right? And it is true that we could be in a relationship with someone who is toxic, but that label, I think actually disempowers us from doing the inside healing or the internal healing. Another way to say it is if I believe I'm broken or damaged or unlovable, I am going to unconsciously choose people to confirm that core false belief. Sometimes when I talk about this, people say, well, it sounds like you're blaming or victim blaming or victim shaming. Not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we want to unplug from labeling the other person, the boss, the situation, the romantic partner, and look at how we came to choose this relationship, not from a place of blame, but from a place of uh, empowerment, actually. Okay. I like that. Thank it you. should come from a place of empowerment. And, you know, really, no matter the nature, the nature of this toxic relationship, and no matter how we got into this relationship, often there is something about us that was either drawn to it or kept us 
enmeshed in it. Right. Um, and it, that's always going to be different. So you say toxicity starts within um, and that we create our lives based on the perceptions that arise from the core false beliefs we hold about ourselves. We all kind of hold them until we're really aware. What do you consider core false beliefs? What are we doing that we're not aware of? Well, let's start with the baseline understanding that we come into the world as whole and perfect spiritual beings. And if that doesn't work for you, that language, we could say we come in as a blank canvas, right? And we're very susceptible to the energies around us. And the reason I use the word energies is uh, when we're really, really young, you know, pre-five, our, our brains aren't developed enough. We don't even have the cognitive ability to understand I grew up, I know I know your work, so I, I will say I grew up with a parent who one could consider narcissistic. And because of that, I developed these core wounds about myself. So I came in whole and perfect, wide open, absorbing the energy around me. And because of the world, right? Not from a place of the world is bad or horrible, but from a place of this is what happened. And I decided at a very, very young age that I'm not lovable and I'm not worthy. Those were early beliefs that got concretized into my unconscious, and they actually become a vibration, right? So it's not just I have a thought, I believe I'm unlovable. If it were just a thought, we could learn how to change the mind. I decided this at such a young age. So I was literally walking around, vibrating that I'm with the I'm not lovable core false belief and energetically aligning with people who on the outside seemed like perfectly wonderful people. And the truth is they were, but couldn't be less available for me. So I would say, see, it is true. I am unlovable. I like the way you said that. I really mm -hmm. do. Um, you know, <clears throat> because you're, you really are staying away from the blame game here. Right. Um, <clears throat> and you're talking about, um, the vibration that you're putting out and the vibration that it's matching. Yes. So that takes away the blame from a person or something like that and makes it more about a vibration, which is, is good. It's good. I think that opens people up to understanding because the first thing I notice, one of the first things I notice when I'm working with people is they're so reluctant to blame. Mm. And what I try to explain is we're not blaming, we're trying to understand, because if you don't understand what the experience was, you don't know how to heal from it. But this isn't about blaming anybody, it's about taking responsibility for your healing. So it's a different way of saying it, but I like the way that, that you said that. Thank you, yeah, because it really is not about blame. And in my own journey and in many of the people I've worked with, we, I, I love what you said. Sometimes we don't want to blame, right? Because we're like, oh, it's not their fault. And then we might move into the next phase, which is, oh, it's totally their fault. It's totally my parents' fault. And then we might move into, they did the best they could, but sometimes that's dismissive of the experience, right? And so there's this interesting nuance that when we shift from blame to accountability, we can look at the the knowing that it's less about what happened and more about what we decided about what happened. That doesn't mean we're going to pretend it didn't happen, right? There's this interesting nuance because sometimes people say, oh, they did the best they could. So I'm going to say that it didn't really affect me. 
But the truth is it did, right? And so um, in my own journey, I remember saying, oh, I had the absolute perfect parents. And then about two years into therapy, they were the most horrible people and <laughs> everything was their fault. But then something pretty remarkable happened. I shifted from blaming them and I went right into blaming myself. And that kept me even more stuck because then I was in this shame experience of, oh, it's not their fault, it's mine. And I realized at some point, that's really not going to help us heal. It's more about looking at the tenderness that I can have for that little child self that decided these huge <clears throat> things with such limited information. And that's where the real healing can begin. We shift from blame to curiosity. Good way to say it. Thank you. So really everything gets imprinted on us as children. Mm -hmm. We, like you say, we're a blank canvas, we're a blank slate. Everything's imprinted on us and we carry that. At what point do we re really begin to notice that we've had this pattern of being in toxic relationships or relating to toxic to people relating to people in a toxic way or so forth and so on where do you think that really becomes evident well for me what i have seen is that we realize this through our patterning right through our relationships i remember thinking i thought this relationship was going to be different and it's exactly the same and we hear that over and over and over again right and again we don't want to say oh no there's something wrong with me i keep choosing these people or these work situations, we want to say, wow, isn't it interesting that this pattern keeps repeating? I wonder what's happening within me that's causing me to choose this. Again, not from blame, but from curiosity. Because if I've created that over and over again, there is a way for me to uncreate that and to unplug from the situations and to plug into what are those core false beliefs we've been carrying? What is that frequency? Where did these originate and how do I actually go back and heal them? In some ways, we can actually change the past and that can be provocative. And the reason I say this is we know eyewitnesses are some of the least um, uh, accurate. And so I have a narrative or a story that I'm carrying around about myself. And I think absolutely, if I knew exactly what happened, I could be free of it. But the truth is something happened. I created a story, I created, I had an experience, I developed these core false beliefs, and then from there, the trajectory of my life was solidified in these core false beliefs. So when we go back and start to heal them, in some ways we can change the past. And again, we're not saying that what happened didn't happen. That's the last thing we ever want to say. But what we are saying is, oh, I can actually change my conclusion and in some ways change the past. Okay. All right. And the conclusion that you're referring to is the conclusion that we've drawn about ourselves, exactly. not about the events, but about ourselves. Yes. Right. Yeah. So what kind of things, what kind of conclusions do people who grow up in these kind of environments tend to draw for themselves? Well, let's look so at it. From name the one I, I'm not lovable, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and let's look at it from sort of a brain development um, standpoint. When we're really young, we think very much in black and white, right? So um, mommy or daddy is happy. I must be a good child. Mommy or daddy are upset. There's something wrong with me. It's not uh, logical. 
as an adult, we can say, oh, of course, it's not the child's fault. When we look at something even more severe like sexual trauma, we understand it's not the child's fault, but there's something about the young brain that thinks, oh, there's something that I did to cause this. We hear this when parents get divorced. Oh, there's something that I did. So the reason I start with that is to realize that, as I said, the brain isn't even developed. So um, let's say we have a narcissistic parent and it's all about them. We will end up thinking, I don't matter. Even though as an adult, we can say, actually it was mom or dad that had this issue, but we don't really talk ourselves out of it because we're so susceptible as little kids. And so a, a parent's behavior can cause us to create these core false beliefs or develop them. And, you know, usually they start with I am or I am not. And the ones I see most often are I am not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I am unlovable and I am unworthy. There are many other ones, but those four seem to show up in most of the people I know on some level. Right. And so these beliefs that we have about ourselves, this is not something that we can logically or consciously just erase. We can't say, okay, so... I can disprove that, therefore it's not, because it is so within our core. It's 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 a construction. It's the structure of who we've been, who we've built, right? So, how do we go about um, changing those deep-seated messages? Well, I love the way you're framing it because so many people say, just change the narrative, just change the thought, or they say, change your behavior, change your thinking, right? Act, you know, opposite action we hear in some of the modalities. And that can be really useful. Or we say, use affirmations. All of that can be useful. But what you're pointing to is really what's dear to my work and my heart. And that is we, we really, it's all happening in the unconscious and it's all happening at a vibrational level. So we can't really just change our thinking because that's why we're like as much work as I've done in therapy as much I've gone to the workshops I've done the communication skills but there's something that happens that I keep re-choosing or choosing this relationship over and over again so for me I go back to I ask myself a question and I invite people to ask this question where did this originate now we might not say oh it was that one day in first grade that that moment happened but for many of us, we'll say, let's live in that question. Where did this originate? We look back and we think about a time maybe that we didn't have that. In my own journey, I remember pre-five, I remember being so open and so happy and just felt so lucky to be alive. And so there's something about remembering that and then say, wow, what happened to that awareness? When did I first start believing this? In my own journey, it was about intergenerational trauma from both my parents' side around sex addiction, around issues with food issues, addiction of all sorts. It came to me energetically. And so getting back and having some tenderness, it's really about reparenting ultimately, giving that part of ourselves that feels wounded, the love and attention that many of us didn't get as children. How big a part is that genetic um, transfer? I know well, that we do carry energetically, we, it comes through the genes and everything like that, but often it's kind of hard to, to disseminate which is coming through the genes or which is genetic predisposition because of the way that you know, you're raised and you're more susceptible to it. 
that all gets a little confusing. Is there a way to sort of take that apart and understand it? Yeah, I love this. And I'm going to talk about it in a couple of different ways. One, I would say if I were to answer that question 10 years ago, I would have said, well, we have these ge genetic issues that really we can't change. But what we do have control over or power over is the environment and what we grew up in. But we're living in different times now where we're realizing we actually can affect the brain. We can actually heal. Um, you know, epigenetics is showing us that the trauma comes through many generations. The great news is, though, as we heal, we actually start to change the genetic code. Now, this is much above my above my ability intellectually. Right. But what I do know is science is saying that we create new neural pathways. Now, a lot of times people say that's through behavior. I actually think it's we actually can heal these deeper issues. And we're realizing now we change the way we relate to our DNA. And over time, it changes. When we actually lean into that, this is absolutely unbelievable. So the age-old question of nature or nurture is now changing to saying, regardless of whether it's nature or nurture, because I I imagine it's got to be both, right? Right. Um, we can actually change both of those. And that is a really exciting proposition and something that I think is very exciting about the times we're living in. So changing the way that we relate to our DNA. <laughs> do we just say, hey, DNA, <laughs> hey, DNA, listen, um, we don't agree. No, no. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously <laughs> there's obviously a much better way to do this. So what is and I'm familiar with what you're talking about, neuroplasticity, the, the way that we can change the neuro, neurons in our brain, the neuropathways in our brain. And absolutely. This really is at the heart of a lot of the work that I do because we just need to change our mindset. You change your mindset and you change almost everything. But yeah. that's not easy because yeah. of cognitive dissonance, because you keep getting drawn back to what you're most familiar with. That's so right. What do we yeah. do? So how do we change our DNA? Well, I want to be clear. I'm not a doctor, nor am I a scientist. <laughs> But what I do know is that as we start to develop a different relationship with these core false beliefs and a different relationship with who we believe we are, we actually start to create new patterns in our life. Now, the science of that is we're creating these new neuropathways, right? We we have a new behavior over and over and over again. It literally creates a different groove in the brain, if you will, a different neuropathway. And this happens over time. But what I'm curious about is like, okay, yeah, but what you just said is, yeah, that's true. If I change my behavior, even change my thoughts, I'm going to change that over time. But how do we actually do that? And as we've already established, it's really much deeper. It's about going in and having tenderness and curiosity about the little child. I looked at my nephew when he turned seven and I thought, oh my gosh, by his age, I mean, I look at him you know, obviously he's much older now, but when he was seven, I thought, gosh, he's just this perfect being. But I, at that age, decided I was not good enough and I was unworthy. And it, it kind of breaks my heart, but that can also break our heart open to a different possibility. So going back, really becoming aware of those core decisions I made, allowing my child to actually feel the impact of what was happening instead of going into the defense strategy or what I call a brilliant strategy. And from there, we can have a different conclusion. 
and really start to change the way our life looks, the way our life feels. And then over time, we're going to create new neuropathways and we're going to have a very different way of being with ourselves in the world. And that becomes then the automatic way of living, not the old one. And being with ourselves is um, really depends at some point on being with our child, our inner child. Yeah. You know, and, and for anyone that believes that you leave your child behind, um, it's just not true. You are, you are acting, you are functioning from the mind of that little child, aren't you, TJ? Yeah. And, you know, for some reason, the last uh, week, I've met multiple people who have shared with me that their grandparents survived the Holocaust mm. and that no, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know how sometimes it's like, wow, that I, I'm hearing this over and over again. Let me be really curious about that. One person I sat down and had a conversation conversation with, he said, my grandparents survived the Holocaust and no one ever talked about it, but I knew it was there. And he was saying, I knew it was there. I could feel something. I could feel the trauma. Now, as a child, he didn't say, I can feel the intergenerational trauma, <laughs> right? It's just he was, there was something about the grandparents that were very afraid. As an adult, he understood it intellectually, but he had to go back and say, what did that feel like to be in that energy um, of that trauma and of people, therefore, coming out of that experience and having a whole set of strategies to survive that got passed down? totally understandably but as a little child he was absorbing that and that work needed to be much deeper than just healing it by saying of course that was their reality because they had experienced it i think about people who went through the depression we could name all kinds of different experiences that would cause this generational um, trauma to be passed down yes people often ask me you know why i think um the cluster B disorders like narcissistic personality disorder are so prolific. And I can't really come up with anything except the one thing that I can think of is um, many of our fathers or grandfathers were in World War II. They fought in World War II. These men came home with PTSD, although it was not, it was called shell shock and things like that. And I can't help but, le but believe that that was passed on through their behavior and also through the genes. Like my father was, um, he was a medic on the front lines. Wow. So he saw the worst of the worst, but yeah. he talked about the, the World War II as if it was the best time of his life. He talked about it for, he's still talking, he's 99, he's still talking about it. Um, trying, I think trying to process it and everything like that. But I really do believe that that had an impact and of course, anytime there's been a war and, you know, soldiers have come home, that's going to influence their children. And one thing I tell people all the time, I'm like, if you know what, if, if you have children, if you don't want to do this for you, please do it for your children, because there's no way you can compensate for this. You will, your children will um, inherit your mindset. Yes. I remember when my nephew was young, I would say things and thought, oh my gosh, I that was my mother's voice. And it was just 
automatic. And I, I had to go back and, and like correct that. I, I wanted to go back and correct that because I know how that felt as a kid. And so I agree with you 100% that we, we, be, we can become unconscious and pass these things down. And we, we, we think that's normal, right? Like we don't have any other way of relating to reality other than what we experienced growing up. Um, I recently heard someone and I thought this was so encouraging about where people are at in consciousness. Um, a friend of ours um, is pregnant now and her husband said, I need to go do some deep work in these next nine months because I don't want to pass this down to my our child. And well, I just I think that's so beautiful, right, because he's aware but it's time to address it. And that's, you know, a lot of times when people have kids, all the childhood stuff comes up because we're right in it, right? And we can feel that same energy. And so I love what you're saying because we can actually heal and not pass this along to the next generation. That was my determination. I wanted to end the legacy yeah. with my children. But initially, as conscious as I was of this, initially my anger was coming out, my short short fuse was coming out and things like that. And when I realized that I'm like, um, what am I doing? Right. And I got help right away because I was not going to do this to another little child. Right. So that's so important. Um, and you also, I know that you also work with addiction. How does this all play into addiction? Well, what I've discovered in a hundred percent of the people I've worked with that the three root causes, and when I say the three root causes, I don't mean the only causes, but these three I see in everyone I've ever worked with, these three root causes, and that's unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame. And so when we look at what we've discussed, the trauma that gets passed down, the traumatic experience of living on planet Earth, we disconnect from our true nature. We start to believe that we're something other than this beautiful, whole and perfect, infinite being. We start to believe we're broken. And then we develop toxic shame. And I call it toxic shame because shame is literally toxic to our system when we believe we're broken. And so core false beliefs that keep us feeling stuck really is another way to say shame. I believe I'm broken. <clears throat> and then I start to choose relationships like we've already talked about from this belief I'm broken. And how it relates to addiction is when these, these things are so prevalent in one's life, we have to find someone or something to bring relief. And if we, for example, let's say we find a drug that helps us find relief oh my gosh, finally, I found something to really not feel all of these things, not to feel the shame. And it's easy to become addicted to it because, wow, that felt really good. You know, in, in the beginning, it just feels like relief or it feels really good. And then we can become repetitive about it. And again, you know, the brain science is we start to create this groove of like cocaine is what I need, right? And then we become addicted to it. It makes total sense. It's just one coping strategy. It's a right. coping strategy. And it's just, unfortunately, when you choose that coping strategy, um, it just makes your life that much worse, you know? It's yeah, not like, it's, yeah, it, it, yeah. So what were you gonna say? Well, I mean, it, it, what once brought, brought relief, you know, the paradox is it actually ends up, the opposite ends up happening. Like even, even alcohol, right? M many people, maybe even most people drink because it, 
helps bring down the inhibitions. You know, we call it social lubricant for a reason, right? And so there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if one becomes addicted to it, the very thing that helped them to feel connected ultimately creates more disconnection. Once someone starts drinking so heavily, it's like they're not being social anymore in most cases. Um, they're actually not getting the connection that it once brought them. So in some ways, there's some kind of line we cross where it's bringing us the exact opposite of what it did in the beginning. And that's where we would call it addiction because we don't call it addiction as long as it's working. We call it fun. <laughs> it's only when it starts causing problems that we say, oh, this isn't really serving me. Mm -hmm. And hopefully those who get into these addictions get to a point where they recognize that rather than just sinking further because it can be a, you know, it can spiral you downward to the point where you feel worse and worse and worse about yourself and then, you know, you don't even care anymore. Um, so you work with people who have addictions? Yeah, I mean, mostly my work now is training clinicians in the field of addiction treatment um, and mental health, because um, there's something that happens with many people who are addiction counselors or therapists. Many people have been trained to diagnose and treat, which of course is important. But I come in, I'm sort of the spiritual guy, right? So I come in and say, in the in addition to that, what would it be like to look for the part of the client you're working with as infinitely capable of, of their own healing. And of course the paradox is, you know, they can't do it alone because here they are in treatment, right? Something is not working for them, but this idea that our clients are broken and our job is to fix them. First of all, it's exhausting. And secondly, it's not really effective. So I go in and I, I train clinicians through an experience of what it's like to actually hold space. And we hear this term a lot, but to help someone realize that they have the ability to actually heal. And we're here, here actually to see something about them that maybe they can't or haven't been able to access for themselves. <clears throat> That's revolutionary. I, I think it is revolutionary. I hope that it is because, you know, when I started working in the addiction treatment field in 2008, it was very striking to me, as I said, in clinical meetings, people refer, were referred to as their diagnosis rather than the diagnosis is a strategy to manage something, right? So when like someone, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, that kind right? of Right, or, or even these, like I'm borderline or I'm narcissistic, right? We're presenting as that, but as long as we're only looking, if we're actually looking at the person as that, then we're actually, we're almost co-signing on that behavior and concretizing that behavior rather than saying, I wonder what they're managing. You know, if someone has a borderline personality disorder um, diagnosis, they're deeply seeking to be seen and heard. But if we're only looking at them as their diagnosis, then we're only treating symptoms and behaviors instead of like getting down to the actual root causes. Mm -hmm. Right. Perhaps with borderline, that you know, that may be the case. With narcissistic personality disorder, the person has no ability to um, it, to experience um, who they are. They they can't because the what they do in order to cope with life is they form a false self, and the false self's job is to never let the true self feel anything. So you can't get through, you cannot cut through the false self. 
and they're never going to be introspective and they're never going to go within to be able to find out what happened. They can't, you know, like years ago, my mother said to me, um, you know, she was having a hard time. And I said to her mom, you know, you really should consider therapy. Now my mother is the narcissist in my life. I said, you really should consider therapy. She said, Oh no, Randy, I'm terrified of what's in there. Yeah. And that's basically the truth in, in this yeah. way, but you know, I can see it um, in other mental illnesses. I can see it in addictions, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, gambling addictions, things like that. And really what they are are just coping strategies that are just because they don't have um, coping strategies that are concrete. They just didn't learn them. They're using whatever they can come up with to try to feel good in the moment. Yeah. And so we just want to be curious about all of that, right? Because I think the paradigm that has been established is some of these, these disorders are permanent. And as you've said, in many cases, that's true. A person will go through their entire life and not be able to look, right? And so the disorder that we label the disorder is a strategy. But as you've said, it doesn't mean the person's going to be able to access healing that but it also might be, right? And I always want to open, I always want to be open to the possibility that someone actually can start to heal that. Yeah. Um, I agree with you completely that someone who who is truly what we would call a narcissist doesn't have the ability to actually look beyond that. But I also want to hold the possibility that they can, right? Doesn't mean they will. But if I'm saying they can never heal from this, then I'm part of that continued um, you know, the paradigm that they're never going to get through this. And again, it's very, it, it's not once, it's not simple here. There are layers to this conversation, but for some people, maybe they can start to heal from that. From other people, they might not be able to heal from that. But I think when we decide there's no one that can ever heal from this, that then we, then maybe we're missing an opportunity. And I do, you know, I, I think someone, you know, like sometimes we would hear someone who is a sex addict or someone who is a perpetrator, these people can never heal. So they end up getting put in this camp of like, these people can never heal. So we just need to keep everyone safe from them. And that may be true in many cases. But if we continue to do that, then we're not really going to stop the cycle. We're just going to keep passing it on. So I want to be really curious about that. Um, I don't have answers, but boy, do I have a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I hear that. I hear you that, that you like to be curious about that. And that makes sense. I mean, that's, that's a really great approach. We, we want to get away from labeling ourselves and labeling people, because that's really what you're saying. Once we put a label, once we smack a label on us or them, then that's what they become. And they're nothing more than that. Right. So, um, so that, that really does, um, I, I see where you're coming from with that. I th and I think what, what maybe what you're speaking to, too, is I've seen so many people thinking, and this is true for me, too, I can change them, right? And they end up in these, I, and I can't even put it in the eye, I was in these relationships where I'm like, but I'm the one that can get through, right? And that's where the relationship can become really toxic. Mm -hmm. um, I was, you know, my, my first mentor would call it the Statue of Liberty Complex. Bring me your poor, your tired, your huddled <laughs> masses yearning to be free. I can heal you. 
<laughs> and so that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this. I'm really speaking to the professionals in this case, where it's like we're in a paradigm of this is permanent and we don't know if it is, or we, we're in a paradigm where it's organic or biological. And as we've said, it probably is on in some ways, but it also might be environmental and we actually can start to heal it. So for the person watching or listening who says, Oh, great. This, <laughs> my, my partner might be able to have a breakthrough. I think what we're, 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 we're speaking in very nuanced ways about this, not it's this or it's that, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for yes. that clarification, because yes, that's really what my intention was in bringing that up. Yes, yes I don't want people to have false beliefs because this yeah. is, this, this has to come from the person. It's not that's something right. you can do. And right. it's not something that's just going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's right. not going to happen. Um, some people think praying about it is going to make it happen, you know, uh, manifesting is going to make it happen, thinking positive is going to make it happen. That's not what we're saying here. Right. What we're saying is that maybe a clinician can look at it differently, yeah. but that person may or may not get to that clinician. So, right. clear. Thank you for clearing yes, that. Clearing absolutely. That. <laughs> you get I it. want to always be clear because it can, it can be confusing sometimes. And, you know, we all hear what we hear. And that's why I will often say, I'm not sure if you said this, but what I heard you say is, right, let's get some clarification. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So what is the first step that we take in changing? So, you know, I often... One of the first things I do with my clients when I really realize that they're stuck in um, in this loop of limiting beliefs is I always have them between the time I see them that day and the time I see them the next time, start listening to what they're telling themselves. Because yeah. I think that we walk around telling ourselves a lot of lies and we just and we feel lousy when we do it. And we don't even know we're doing it to ourselves. So right. um, how do you, what is the first step for you in recognizing these limiting beliefs that are holding us back? Well, I love the way you said it because um, a wise person once said there are three steps, awareness, awareness, and awareness. <laughs> um, and so it could be an awareness of like, in what ways does this relationship, you know, someone will come to therapy and it's like, the relationship is falling apart. That's usually one of the reasons we come to therapy, right? So an awareness of that I, in what way is this relationship historical? Does it feel familiar to all the other ones? And then what you're saying is then let's also be aware of the narrative because most of us, many of us are walking around not realizing. I mean, I was so brutal to myself, but I had no idea I was. I didn't even realize I was saying to myself as an adult in my 20s, oh, I'm just so stupid. Oh, I'm just, I'll never amount to anything. Oh, I'm not good enough. And so I love what you're saying because that can be the beginning. And then we can go into the deeper awarenesses, the awareness of what it feels like, the awareness of where it originated, the awareness of what it will take for us to start changing that not through our mind, as we've said, but through something much deeper. So that's the awareness, awareness, awareness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, if I ask the question, what are you telling yourself? Yeah. I get like, what? I'm not telling myself anything. Well, what are you saying when you're starting to really feel bad? I'm not saying anything. Okay. So, so let's, let's just take a little, little time and I want you to think about that. Yeah. But 
we do we beat ourselves up that's our natural tendency is to beat ourselves up to blame ourselves and you know people who um are like this who get into these toxic relationships and who have these limiting beliefs are ones who always want to take responsibility for their portion you know well i must have some responsibility for my portion and then they begin to just bang on themselves, beat themselves up to the point where they have to take some responsibility. And sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes responsibility doesn't need to be taken. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting too, because um, what, what often presents is the opposite of the core false belief. So the way I talk about it is core false belief, brilliant strategy rather than coping mechanism, right? So if my core false belief, so for example, a lot of very successful CEO types or type A's, um, that gets celebrated, right? You know, addiction gets looked down upon. Oh, that's bad. There must be something about you that's broken or that things off or wrong. But a CEO type that, you know, works 70 hours a week gets applauded. So sometimes this strategy or the behavior is the opposite of the core false belief. And the reason I'm saying this is someone might first be aware of the strategy. You might have someone say, well, I don't know how I talk to myself is you, you got this, you can do it, crush it, dominate. And that might be a strategy to manage because I actually don't think I'm worthy. Good point. Uh, yeah. And in my third book, Conscious Creation, I, I walk us through this conscious creation process that I've created with two characters. And one of them, her name is Sasha, and she's a lawyer. And growing up, she was the perfect child and got all straight A's. And something that seems small and insignificant, she came home with a B once and her parents didn't talk to her. <laughs> And she developed from that something so simple, I'm unworthy. And then her entire life became about perfection, getting more degrees. And she was trying to make partner in the law firm. And she's a character that's kind of a com com combination of many people I know. And she didn't get partner and her whole world fell apart. Mm -hmm. And she didn't understand why, because first of all, she had always gotten everything she had ever tried to achieve. So if we were working with her, she might say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any core false beliefs. Right. I'm always good. I'm perfect. If there's anything that I would say, it's that I have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. But underneath that, through some deeper work, she realized that that was actually a strategy of the I'm not worthy core false belief that was buried very deeply in her unconscious. Good example. Um, yeah, I think that we can only do that for so long. We can only compensate for so long. Yeah. At some point, we crash. At some point, that all falls apart, and we don't. And then we have no idea why. And that's that's even harder. But I agree with you that we can do the opposite. Um, so well, and, and a lot of times people will come to therapy, and I'm sure you've worked with people who say you know, my, my life is great. I, I have the house that I thought would make me happy. I have the husband I thought would make me happy. I've got my two kids. They're in great school. Everything is going well, but there's something that feels unsatisfied. And we would want to be curious if that's because there's something unhealed deep within and they have achieved everything they thought would bring them happiness. And by the way, I'm telling my own story. That's what happened to me in my thirties, right? I, I got the house, I got the partner, I had the, I had the Lexus, I had the business, everything was supposed, but I still don't feel deeply satisfied, right? And so the journey for me was realizing 
that a lot of that was a compensation for, and, and it was just a call to do deeper work. So a lot of times people do, their life falls apart, they get a divorce, they lose the job, they go through a bankruptcy, and that's an invitation to look. But for other people, it's just like, I don't know, there's some, there's got to be something more than just this. And when when someone comes to therapy or to recovery and says, is this all there is? That can be an entry point as well. I see um, what I call overachieving and underachieving um, as a result of growing up in a family with a narcissistic parent. And the overachiever is always trying to prove something. Like you said, compensate to you know, make sure they're good enough to show the parent they're good enough, thinking if they do all this, they will then be more loved or approved of or whatever. And then you have the underachiever who is the one that no matter what they did, they never were good enough. And so they be, they develop a defeatist attitude and then right. they become underachievers, you know? Yeah. So, but these are very much related to what happens to us in childhood. Yeah. And, and for men, for some of us, we go back and forth between the two achieve, achieve, achieve our world falls apart. See, so we, we, it's almost like we, it, it's this, this back and forth, almost in a bipolar way of like high achieving, oh, failure, high achieving failure. Right. Um, and I love that what, what you said, because in some way we're still trying to get our parents love, even as an adult, but we're also the, the deeper approach is as a result of growing up with that parent, we did develop the core false beliefs. So we're not really consciously saying, oh, if I, if I, you know, get another million dollars, my mom will finally love me. Right. But it's something that's that's as you said, it developed so early that it becomes an unconscious strategy. Most of us, like someone who's highly anxious, for example, they don't wake up one day and say, Oh, I hope today is the most anxious day ever. <laughs> but they go into the day and anxiety is managing something. And in that same way, we're not consciously thinking, if I just get this promotion, my mom will finally love me. It's much deeper than that. And as we're trying to heal that, we keep trying to heal that, trying to heal that, but we don't really heal it from the outside in. We heal it from the inside out. How do you help people get in touch with that child, that inner child? Well, I think, I think it's an awareness that it's happening to start with because, you know, how many times you've heard someone say, oh, that's ridiculous. I've moved on from that. That didn't affect me. You know, someone's strategy and, and this, it doesn't always show up and men only, but a lot of men do that because it's like, oh, I'm not my past. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on from that, right? Because um, many times, and I know gender norms are changing, gender as a, in itself is changing, right. but a lot of men are taught, you know, just, you know, man up. You don't have to have feelings, just, you know, they go into the intellect because that's what they've been taught. So for some people, even getting to the idea that it might be maybe possible sometimes every now and then, that that inner child is a wound that's running the show. So again, the awareness of that. And then for me, I go into a meditative process where we can think of a situation in our childhood that was painful and see if we can go back to that memory. Not, not like we have to go back and re-traumatize ourselves, but go back and see if we can remember what we decided about ourselves. And the the three phrases I use for inner child work is, it's okay for you to feel this way 
it's safe for you to feel, and I'm here for you. And as we start to have, because a lot of times in our child work, um, people will say they almost want to talk their child out of feeling the pain, but we want to actually create safety internally to allow our inner child to feel it. That's the key. I think the key is we couldn't feel it at the time for a a variety of reasons. And now the way we heal it is to actually feel it. Hey, that rhymed. Look at that. I'm sure I'm not the first person to ever say that. No, but that's good. That's good. And um, are you familiar with Ho'oponopono, the Hawaiian? Yes. yes. Okay. Absolutely. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I love you. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and another another way to approach it is, you know, I'm sorry I, that I abandoned you. Nobody was there for you. Look, you're in this scenario and nobody's there advocating for you. Now let's be there and let me advocate for you. And it's, it really does help and um the people that i've worked with that grasp this concept just they just grow by leaps and bounds that's right and then they never leave that child behind they take that child everywhere no matter what kind of professional they are you know it's just it's just truly amazing yeah because that's that's the reason that third that third phrase is i'm here for you and and sometimes the the child is like oh no you're not Right. And we look at the archetype of the teenager with this, which is sort of F you or rebellious. And sometimes that shows up as addiction. But that's really that that teen self, if you will, that archetype is trying to protect the child. But it really isn't protecting the child because the child, as we have established, needs to be seen and heard, allowed to feel. And as you said, the most important thing in my experience, too, is I'm here for you because we end up abandoning ourselves at a very early age. And that, of course, was a survival strategy, but it's no longer really moving us in the direction we want. Right, exactly. You know, some people would call this psychobabble, but it is not psychobabble. <laughs> it is so logical and it does work. And if, you know, I like the way that you're explaining it, you're taking it apart so that people can really see that this isn't just a let's do inner child work. You know, this is a cool thing to do. No, it's very important that we get in touch with that. So yeah. what are some of the other ways that um, that we can begin to change this narrative, this false narrative? I think as we've established, the key is this inner child work and we get there, you know, so I love the way our conversation is t- where it's taken us because we're first aware of the patterns and then we're aware of the narrative that's created the patterns. And then we go deeper and we're aware of what's in the unconscious, the core false beliefs. And then the deeper healing work is, oh, there's this child that I've actually abandoned and now I'm going to integrate. I'm now I'm going to start caring for them. So that really is, that's to me, that's the process. And that might look different for different people. But ultimately, what we've said is the deeper work. I don't think there's anything deeper than saying, I'm going to learn how to care for that child. The only thing I'll add, and I guess sort of, you know, in closing or the final, it's like the, the, the what I will add is there is a place within each of us that is unharmed and unharmable and that we can actually heal the wounds and return to that. Hmm. If it's true, we came into the world. And so I, I, I like to say there's a place within each of us that is whole and perfect. And that really all of this work is about reconnecting with or being aware that that's there. So as we heal through this inner child process, we start to find that inner preciousness that's always been there, but for many of us, we abandoned. Right. Great, great, great way to end this. Um, and I know that you um, have to go because you have something going on, but I want to um, 
for anybody that wants to get in touch with you, purchase your books. Um, the one that I have here is Conscious Recovery. It's kind of pale, but there we go, Conscious Recovery. Um, and I know you have two in the background where you're sitting. So uh, how do we get in touch with you? tjwoodward.com. That's where you'll find everything, books, social, all my videos. And um, yeah, tjwoodward.com. Great conversation, TJ. Thank you. Thank you so much. I so appreciate our time together. Me too. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.